Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Prince Charles Alexander. Hang in there, everybody that has a dream. It might not look the way you want it to look when you arrive, but if you if you get a great plan, you stick to the plan, and you move forward through that plan, the Lord above does provide. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. This week's special guest is Grammy Award-winning producer, recording artist, engineer, and educator, Prince Charles Alexander. After becoming a signed solo recording artist under Virgin Records in the mid-1980s, he began to focus his attention on a career as a recording engineer. He soon became one of the hottest engineers in hip-hop, recording multi-platinum hits for Mary J. Blige, Usher, Jodeci, Sting, and Diddy. It's his relationship with Diddy, though, that landed him as Bad Boy Entertainment's lead engineer for over 10 years, recording Bad Boy's most iconic songs and albums. In this episode, he dials into the podcast to chat about his early life in Boston, breaking into the industry under music legend Marie Starr, becoming a solo performer on Virgin, getting his big break recording Jodeci's Diary of a Mad Band album, how he landed on Bad Boy, shares vivid stories of recording Biggie's Ready to Die album, his new role as a professor at Berkeley, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the Grammy Award-winning producer, recording artist, engineer, educator, my friend, the silent giant, Prince Charles Alexander. All right. All right. We're ready. We're ready to rock and roll. Prince Charles, what's going on, my man? Hanging in there. That's what's up. That's what's up. I, I, I feel you 100%. How's everything up in Beantown? Good, good. I'm working on many projects here uh, in the academic sphere, and uh, that's keeping me busy. So, uh, Prince Charles, like, t- tell me about yourself. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Boston. Um, I went to a school here called Boston Latin School, which is the first public school uh, in America. It was uh, erected in 1635. Um, 
I went to Brandeis University and got a degree in African and African-American studies. I started my musical journey in Boston Latin when I was 11 years old. I think uh, I entered Boston Latin in the seventh grade. And by the time I finished college, I was pretty convinced that that was what I needed to be doing with my life and uh, had already been in bands through high school and through college. So I put out my first record in 1979, a couple of months before Rapper's Delight. That record was successful. I toured the world for seven years. Hip hop eventually became so dominant in our culture that I felt like I needed to really investigate it a bit deeper. And I went behind the scenes and studied audio engineering and became an audio engineer and then ended up with uh, people like uh, Diddy and Notorious B.I.G. And uh, that was uh, kind of like the pinnacle of what I did in terms of huge record sales in my career. That's kind of like the mid-90s. I want to take it back a little bit. Tell me about your upbringing growing up in, in Boston. What, what neighborhood were you in Boston? Were you in Roxbury? I grew up in a neighborhood called the South End, and the South End at that time was relatively experimental, where there was black, white, Hispanic, and Asian living in uh, my neighborhood. And it was a specific brick uh, duplex type of, uh, what do you call them? Um, Not brownstones, but uh, duplex type of, uh, I don't even know what they call them now, but they were red brick. Okay. And... um, you would call them a co-op now. That's what you would call them. But back then, we were just renting. And it was a, a mixed neighborhood. It's about three blocks from downtown Boston. And downtown Boston in the 70s was called the Combat Zone. So I grew up literally three blocks from the Combat Zone in a pretty uh, diverse neighborhood. Um, so I was exposed to not just blackness, but kind of like universalness in my uh, my growing up. And my mother... Um, was an investigator for the federal government. She worked for the uh, Office of uh, Federal Contract Compliance and the um, EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay. So my my mom was a Fed, basically. (laughs) And how about your dad? My dad was not really in the picture. I saw my dad. um, He and my mom broke up when I was seven. I saw him when I was 14, 21, 25. Uh, 32, 35, and 45, and he passed away when I was 45. It's a, it, it was, you know, typical black man. Uh, yeah, trying to, I'm with you. <laughs> trying to handle responsibility, and, and mom just wasn't having it. Like, the way you're trying to do this is not really correct. So just do you, and I'll do me. And uh, so, yeah, I'm the product of a, of a single mom and her infusion of uh, life, culture, society into me. Uh, where did your love for, for music come about? Like, how, how'd that start? I have no idea because there are no other musicians in my family. Uh, as, as definitely not on my level. You know, there's a little dabbling with saxophone here or there. But my family's from New Orleans. So it must have seeped through the genes, through my mom to me, uh, via a New Orleans connection. Growing up, did you have an, an ambition to you know, be in front of, you know, be frontal talent, vocal talent, or was it always behind the scenes? So I grew up with this idea because I was a straight A student in grammar school. And I grew up with this idea that, okay, 
Uh, I'm growing up in the time of uh, civil rights because I was born in 58. Martin Luther King was killed in 68, so I'm 10 years old. I'm growing up in the time of civil rights. Uh, I'm a straight-A student, so that must mean something. That must mean I'm supposed to be uh, a leader. I'm supposed to be talking to people. I'm supposed to get out in front of my people. I, I started to identify myself as black about eight years old, so 1966. And with that, I said, okay, so what do I do? Do I do it with politics? Do I do it with, um, you know, entertainment? Do I do it with science and technology? Uh, do I become an astronaut? You know, those types of things. And um, but I thought about, you know, the, the different options that were available. I looked in magazines. And I saw this thing in Ebony Magazine, the top 100 people in, in black culture. And the top of the list, the top 50 or 60, were all entertainers. Now, that list changed probably a decade later. But when I was looking, it was all entertainers. And I said, hmm, so if I go in to try to become an astronaut, I'll have to become a colonel in the Air Force. And, you know, we were having problems with Richard Nixon and the, 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 the military back then. I said, I don't know if they're going to be really that open to me as a black man. If I go into politics, you know, we got the, the Dixiecrats and everything running around. I don't know if that's going to be interesting. I said, so really, my people are in entertainment. I'm going to go where my people are. I'm going to make that choice and make that decision. I made that choice when I was 13 years old. I started playing clarinet when I was 11 in high school. And, and when I was 13, Isaac Hayes' Shaft came out. Yeah, yeah. And with all bald head and chains on stage with an iconic music score. I said, that is what I want to do with my life. And that was it. My fate was sealed when I was 13. You know, I have a question that I want to ask because it's a part of, you know, Boston history. And I don't know if you... Maybe you can remember it, but, you know, when Dr. King was assassinated and there was a famous concert where uh, James Brown performed uh, the night of the assassination. Do you have any <laughs> any memory of that? Oh, yeah. I wanted to go because it was, literally it was downtown Boston. It was three blocks from me. I was 10 years old. I was thinking about sneaking out because I'm 10. My mother was not going to let me go. I swear to God, I laid in the bed thinking about how to sneak out and go uh, go to attend. <laughs> Yeah, it was aired on television. Mayor Kevin White was involved, and Kevin White actually got up on the stage in front of all those black people. I thought that that was interesting. Um, you know, and James Brown spoke to people, and he said, look, 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 look here, brother. Look here, brother. This is no way. We are black. We are black. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can't y'all go back down and let's do the show together? We're black. Don't make us all look bad. Let me finish doing the show. Come on the stage. Sit down there. Sit down there. Bill Jones. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, son. Wait a minute. Now, why, why are you up here? Do you want to see the show? Yeah. But what you go down there? Let me do the show. No, that's wrong. No. No. Uh, that's wrong. Are oh, you making me? You're not being fair to yourself and me either. You're not being fair to yourself and me at all. Your race. Now, I asked the police to step back because I figured I could get some respect for my own people. That makes sense. And are we together, we? Get the thing, man. It was as if we had a voice and that somebody was speaking for us. It was really powerful stuff. And so, 
you know, now you're 13, you discover Shaft, you discover, uh, you know, Isaac Hayes. And mm-hmm. like, what was the first step that you knew you, how you were going to participate um, musically? Was it going to be vocally? Did you play an instrument? How did that all happen? So I went from clarinet and uh, eventually I said, well, in order for me to really do this, see, in, in, in those days, we had bands like Cool and the Gang, Ohio Players, Earth, Wind & Fire, Brass Construction, so forth and so on. And all those bands were fronted by horn players. And I was a, a tenor player. Well, I went from alto to tenor. So my dream was to be one of the guys in the horn section in a horn band, like Commodores, you know, Ohio Players and Cool and the Gang. And all the horn players used to, you know, sing lead and sing some backup stuff. So my ambition was to be in front, yes, but not necessarily to be the lead singer, but to be one of the many singers in a band. Well, from the time that I had that thought, the synthesizer starts making inroads into music. And the synthesizer, one of the first um, groups of instruments that it attacked was horn players and string players. So over the span, if you look at the Commodores from 1972 and you look at the Commodores in 1979, the Commodores morphed from a horn band to a band fronted by a guy named Lionel Richie. Cool and the Gang morphed from a horn band to a band fronted by J.T. Taylor, so forth and so on. So in this period, I kind of switched over and said, okay, then maybe I'll just be like a really great horn player and do the, uh, the Grover Washington thing. And then Grover put out a record, just the two of us, where he had Bill Withers singing, I believe. And I'm like, okay, this vocal thing is a little bit hard to dismiss. If I want to be the leader of my organization, my brand, my musical brand, uh, the saxophone seems to be wilting away under the, the power of the synthesizer. The vocalist seems to be moving to the forefront um, as much as I love the vocalists that I've hired, uh, I don't trust any of them with my fortune. So I think I'm going to have to be the one to sing. And that's how it all came about. And that's how Prince Charles uh, debuts as a vocalist in 1979. Wow. And so were, were you writing songs and stuff as well? I did not write. I, my first song that I wrote was a hit. <laughs> I didn't really write anything before that. What I was doing was just, you know, sound of lights. You go, you listen to a Cool in the Gang record you learn your horn part. After I learned my horn part, I started dibbling and dabbling and just trying to figure out what the bass player was playing. But I figured it out by using my saxophone. So the bass player is playing this and I would learn it on my saxophone. I would learn the the, the, the notes in the guitar on my saxophone. So my saxophone and my flute, my wind instruments were my uh, inroads to what was going on in the rest of the band. Plus, I did learn how to play drums. How did you get there, your solo career off the ground? Tell me the story of that. So when I was 13, a couple of my friends knew that I had this passion with the saxophone. And over those two years, I was practicing and listening to Isaac Hayes and listening to Grover Washington. And uh, one of my friends approached me and said, why don't you join a band? And I was like, well, I don't know any bands. He said, I think I might know somebody. So he hooked me up with a guy in um, a projects in Roxbury. And then that guy said, uh, yeah, I know some people. So I went, I I auditioned and I joined that band and they were kind of flaky. And then the word got out that I was this horn player. Because remember, this is the horn player era that I was this horn player looking for a band. So then I went to another band that was even further down in Mattapan. And then um, they had a gig where they wanted to go to New York or something. And my mom said, you're too young. You're not going anywhere. 
and uh, I remember walking like six miles with my horn and and coming and showing up with the guys and going, yeah, I'm ready to go to the gig. I opened up my horn case and the neck to my saxophone was missing. My mom had taken the neck to my saxophone. I, I called her. She came. She got me. I was so brokenhearted. And she said, look, you have to focus on your studies. Music will always be there. You don't have to run after this thing so quickly. So I listened to her. And by the time I was 15-ish, there was a local band, kind of like a Jackson 5 type of thing. And they were looking for a band with horns. So uh, I auditioned at this little hole in the wall that, Lord, if, if, if I mean, my, if I had ever thought about going into this place by not being a musician, it would have never happened. It was like a really funky hole in the wall. Come to find out it was owned by a really benevolent man named Roscoe Gorham, who was investing in this group called the Energetics. The Energetics later went on to become Planet Patrol, and they had records out in the 80s. But they were called the Energetics. They had a band of, uh, you know, bass, drums, keyboards, and guitar, and they had two horn players, me and a, a friend of mine named Rudy. And that was the beginning of it looking and feeling serious to me. We toured the New England circuit, playing in all kinds of clubs. We played the Sugar Shack which was an iconic place here in Boston. Um, and then somewhere on that journey from the age of 15 to 17, 17 is when I finished, I, I graduated high school. Somewhere along that journey, I started uh, branching out and saying, you know, I'm really not happy standing behind these guys, these singers, these Jackson 5 types. I really think that I can do this myself. So I started to call some of the old associations I had of musicians, and I started to try to book myself. And I booked myself as, uh, I think, Sweet Charles, Charming Charles, uh, Brandy Alexander. I was trying to find a name and a brand for myself. My technology head had been formulating also. I didn't even realize it. I saved up money, like $40, to buy a, uh, a receiver that had AM, FM, turntable, and I was listening to music and I was spinning the turntable. I had no idea that that was also a part of what was getting ready to happen to my life. I just wanted to listen to music. Yeah. And um, so by the time I'm 17, um, these thoughts are formulating in my head. And then, boom, here it is. You graduate. What do you do? Do you go to college or do you, trace, do you chase the dream? I mean, groups like Black Ivory had asked me to come on the road with them. I had been hanging out with uh, and, and sneaking into concerts and seeing Stevie Wonder and talking to the drummer, Dennis Davis. And Dennis said, yeah, yeah, you're going to be a big, you're going to be big one day. And I was like, wow, oh, he said, I can, I can, I'm going to be big. Uh, you know, that stuff means something to kids. The fact that this iconic musician would say to me, it's going to happen for you, too. I started to believe that I really had something interesting and had something special. But then college came. So I tried to continue doing what I was doing and go to college. Needless to say, my first semester, I got my first D in uh, college and that didn't feel too good. So I literally had to hunker down. I had a big conversation with my mom and I said, look, I'm going to finish college. I'm going to pull my efforts back and I'm going to make sure that college is a priority. So I pulled everything back. And uh, second semester, I completed it and I made up the credits that I had gotten. Well, I, it probably wasn't. Well, it was a D, but in those days, you didn't get credits for a D. I think people get credits for Ds now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in those days, no, D, no, you get zero credits, buddy. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so I had to make those credits up and I made them up the next semester. So then that summer, I said, okay, since I made those credits up, I'll do my thing. So Sweet Charles, Sweet Charles was born and he was doing his thing in that summer. Then comes the second year, you know, I bought a gold flute. I'm kind of entertaining people on campus. And um, then I did pretty well in my second year and I'm fiddling around with uh, some local gigs to make some money. Uh, playing in Roscoe's Lounge from Thursday to Sunday from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. That became something that I was doing, and I was able to do that and, and handle school because it was a consistent gig. I didn't have to travel all over the place. And then in the summer, I did the Sweet Charles thing again. And then in my junior year, I was trying to do the, you know, the 8 to 2 thing Thursday through Sunday. It felt like a lot, and so I pulled back again. And then some of the guys on campus wanted to start a band and i was like oh, okay so we started a band in my junior year and uh i believe that we put out a record called uh mithril and um, i forget the name of the other record that was on it and that record came out and uh we went into a recording studio and i was kind of fascinated by the recording studio wow look at all these buttons and all yeah these was, that, was that your first time in the studio yes yes and it was a fascinating situation because I didn't really like the way my tenor sounded um, coming through the mic that was being used and the way that it was EQ'd. And I remember thinking that, like, hmm, that, that doesn't sound like Stanley Tarantine. It doesn't sound like Train. How come my horn sounds like that? Is it me or is it the technology? And so that was a question that probably floated around for a long time after that. So then the magic is getting ready to happen. In my junior year, doing those gigs, a guy popped on the scene named Maurice Starr. And so I oh, was. No, no way. I know. Uh, that's the um, uh, new edition? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So oh. explain to the audience who Maurice Starr is. So uh, Maurice Starr is the producer of New Edition. And then later on, he was the producer of New Kids on the Block. He did this magical thing of making the biggest boy band in the world twice. And I actually knew Maurice as just a, uh, a a person that came from D-Land, Florida that was playing on the same circuit as me. And I met him in my probably my junior year. And then that junior year, that summer, I, you know, would play at the club. I'd see Maurice play. I kind of was like checking him out because, you know, I'm I'm competitive. And here's this guy. He came out of nowhere. He came from D-Land. He's all of a sudden he's in Boston, and everybody's talking about him. I'm like, why are they talking about him? So I got to go find out what's going on with him. Maurice could sing his butt off. He could sound like um, he could sound like Michael Jackson. He could sound like uh, Diana Ross. He could sound like Otis Redding. He could sound like Sam Cooke. He's a phenomenal vocalist. He could play keyboards. He could play guitar. He could play drums. He played trombone. He played saxophone. I was like, okay, my head's getting ready to pop. This guy is amazing, and all of my dreams of becoming this thing, I'm either going to have to compete with somebody like that or I'm going to have to be united with somebody like that. So that summer, I'm fiddling around and um, Maurice puts out a record called About Time I Funk in 1978. It's about time I funk you, baby. Parliament Funkadelic. And I knew a guy 
in my life that made a record that sounded like Parliament Funkadelic. I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. It's not some unattainable thing that lives in Detroit. It's not some unattainable thing that lives in New York. It's right around the corner from me. His name is Maurice Starr. I know a real producer. Then something strange happened. Maurice called me up and said, I want you to be in my band. I mean, I could, I could have fell on the floor. And I don't want you to just play saxophone. I want you to play keyboards and saxophone. I'm like, well, I'm not a keyboard player. He said, don't worry about it. I got you covered. I'm like, what are you talking about? He, Maurice saw something in me. He knew that I had talent. So he put my left hand on the bass lines and my right hand on the chords and said, play this and play this. And next thing I knew, I was playing keyboards in his band. Then I, went drums in, then I went to playing drums in his band. I became a part of the Johnson Brothers band and then eventually the Maurice Star band. And we played all around New England. Wow. So you had no real experience playing keys before that? I had been dabbling. I had gone to lessons at the New England Conservatory. But, it, but, but you know, they were teaching me like jazz theory and classical theory. And I was like, I don't understand any of what you're saying. But I had been fiddling around and exercising my hands. So when Maurice showed me what to do, there was some understanding of what was going on. And I, I just played the chords that he told me to play. And I did it consistently and well enough. And then he took me around. So Maurice is the catalyst for my commercial career. Without a Maurice, I don't know what would have happened. I don't know what I would have become. Um, so the rest of the story is my ambition uh, pushed me to now want to compete with Maurice, at least in the recorded realm. Because, I mean, live, Maurice is a phenomenon. I, tr to try to even go at him, because he was kind of like a Muhammad Ali, too. He would talk a lot of smack about his talent and his ability. He was really hilarious. Um so I say, okay, I want to make a record and I want it to be as good as Bob Tom and Funky. So what's the best way to do it? To get Maurice involved. So I went to Maurice. I said, hey, I want to do a record too. Maurice said, well, what kind of money you got? And I kind of hedged and hummed and hawed. And I, and I said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. What kind of deal can we make? He said, look, I'm going in the studio. Uh, one of the local radio DJs wants to put together a two-song EP or, or a double-sided single or whatever it was. And he said, so why don't I do two songs on you? And I'll have him pay the up for, first half and you pay the back half. Will that work for you? It was either him that came up with or maybe I came up with it. I don't know. But anyway, that was the deal. And I was like, sure. Have him pay the first half and I'll pay the back half. We'll go and we'll do four songs. Next thing I know, I'm in the studio with Maurice Starr and his brother, Michael Johnson, who Michael Johnson is the leader of a group that would later be known in the 80s as the, the Johnson Crew. And that's Maurice's brother because Maurice Starr's real name is Larry Johnson. And his group, his the first group that they had was the Johnson Brothers. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so I'm in the studio with Maurice Starr and, and Michael Johnson and I had just bought an instrument two weeks before called the Lyricon, which is a wind synthesizer. Because remember, I told you that the synthesizer was taking jobs away from horn players. So I figured that if I bought a wind synthesizer, then I'd at least even the playing field between uh, my talents and the ability of, of the sonic landscape of the synthesizer to be accessed by my talent. So I had 
earned, I own this instrument for two weeks. I go at Maurice. Maurice um, had Michael play the drums. Maurice played the bass line. Maurice played the guitar. I added some Lyricon parts. I added a flute solo. Maurice added a piano solo. I did the, the primary singing. I found two females. They were twins that did the background singing. A song called In the Streets was born. We doubled it with a song called Tight Jeans. No, I'm sorry. We doubled it with a song called Fresh Game. Fresh Game and In the Streets was released. And my career began in 1979 in late May, early June of 1979. And, and at this time, were you, are you still Sweet Charles or Prince Charles? And like- so the decision who I would be was made in the studio during those sessions. And uh, the, final, the final name happened just before we had to go to the printing press. And, and label the compositions. And then I decided Prince Charles because I thought, you know, I'm coming from Boston. Nobody knows who I am. If I use the name Prince Charles, there's this guy over in England, right? And maybe my records will get to England and they'll make fun of him by playing my music and it'll blow me up. Mm, okay, okay. So I was like, let's go with Prince Charles and see what happens. Um, so in order to get my music out, I only had $100 to my name. So I went to Roscoe Gorham, the guy I mentioned earlier who had Roscoe's Lounge. He said, no, I, I can't. I'm, I'm doing Maurice and I'm doing these other things. I don't need another act. He said, but there's this guy that just came from New York. His name is Tony Rose. He was at Atlantic Records. And he's looking for something interesting in town. So maybe he's interested. So I went to a few other people and because, you know, Tony was like a slick New York record executive. I'm like, I don't know if I really want to do that. I went to a few other people, a second person, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, like car dealers and stuff like that. Nobody bit. So I eventually went to Tony and Tony said, I love it. I love it. This is great. Because I was kind of like me and the Lyricon were like Bootsy and his bass. I was this like futuristic wind synthesizer guy playing bass lines on his Lyricon. And it was like Tony was like Gaga over it. So he is the one to put up the money to get the record out. He's the one to put up the money to distribute it on Maurice's label, Boston International, first. And then later he formed a record company called Solid Platinum Records. And then the second pressing of my record was done on Solid Platinum Records. And, and what was that feeling like having like your, your record out? Uh, oh, man. I'll never forget walking across the street at Dudley Station and hearing um, in the streets blaring out of somebody's car that I did not know. It, 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 it's heaven. Anybody that's never experienced it, I, you, you just, I can't even ex- describe it to you. You don't know what you're missing. It, it is so elating. It's such a confidence boost. It's, you know, it, it, hit, it infused me for years. I'm probably still vibing off the vapors. <laughs> really, like uh, 40 years later, I'm still vibing off the vapors of that feeling. And so this this takes place in 1979. This is 1979, and this is around May or June. Uh, in August, 
uh, Good Times comes out by Chic. And in October, Rapper's Delight comes out by the Sugar Hill Gang. And there's an intersection of, of hip-hop and funk, because my record was a funk record. It's like a Parliament Funkadelic thing. Uh, that intersection of funk and hip-hop was actually detrimental to musicians. A lot of people don't write that part of the story. But musicians were impacted hugely by the growth and the expansion of hip-hop. I did not see that coming. Uh, when when I heard Rapper's Delight, I heard three guys talking on a record, and I thought that was a silly thing. Wow. Okay, and so when did the shift from you being an artist to you being behind the scenes like ha happen? What was the timeline, and how did that situation even come about? So from 1979 to 1981, I was in Boston, and I became I, I did my first album. I started working on my second album. By 1981, I was I, I realized I had outgrown the city. Like all the TV stations knew me, all the radio stations knew me, everybody knew me in Boston. And I felt um, I wasn't rich and I kind of felt weird being in the city, being such an inspiration and not being like a, a true celebrity, but like a fake celebrity. Right? <laughs> so I moved to New York and I had $13 to my name and I said, OK, Boston, I'll, I'll keep Boston, but I want to go somewhere and feel like I'm going to the next level. So I went to New York. And then from 1981 to 1983, I finished my second album. We found a distributor. That distributor was Reach Out International Records. And then we did a cassette-only deal. So I retained the vinyl rights. I sold some of the vinyl rights to... Okay, so Reach Out International takes the cassettes, distributes them in New York, and distributes them in, guess where? London, England. Prince Charles and the City Beat Band debut in London, England, and people lost their minds. It got so big over there that a label, an underground label called Greyhound Records, wanted to find me and give me a, a, a vinyl deal because they knew that I had a cassette-only deal. And then Virgin Records got hold of it, got wind of it. Virgin wasn't an American label yet. And they were like, who is this black dude running around calling himself Prince Charles? We want some of that. So Virgin calls me up. So between 1981 to 1983, all this is going down. By 1983, I signed a deal with Virgin. They gave me a budget for a third album. They purchased the first album and the second album and had the entire catalog. And, 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 and one thing I, I want to touch on, too, because I always say sometimes in, in, uh, in like a documentary, uh, a person's story is kind of expedited and it's told really you just hear like kind of the highlights of this happened and this happened. But what was it like moving from Boston to New York to a city you've never been before? Like what neighborhood did you move into and what was that experience like? And how did you vibe in the city of being in New York? So I had been to New York when I was a little kid. Uh, when I graduated from Brandeis, one of my friends uh, was in Brooklyn. So when I first went to New York, um, I think my stepfather was there. My stepfather was in New York. He was living on East 80th Street with his girlfriend, and she's not African-American, and it was kind of contentious with my mom. But anyway, he was there, and I was like, look, I'm coming. I need somewhere to crash. I'm crashing with him. Uh, he and I really got into it because, I mean, he was, you know, drugging, shooting heroin, and he was kind of a, a hot mess. And I'm in, I'm in there trying to become like the next superstar in the world, you know, chasing Prince and chasing Michael Jackson. And I don't have a nickel to my name, but 
I'm still trying to pursue my dream. So he and I eventually got into it. The battle of the words kind of escalated. And it was one of the weirdest things that ever happened to, to me in my life. And I had to get out from under his roof. And so I went and, and I went to Brooklyn with my friend um, from Brandeis, spent some time there. And while I was in Brooklyn, I was doing like some tent work, like at the National Survey for Research and doing what it called telemarketing. And <laughs> while I was right here, I am this big star in Europe and I'm freaking telemarketing in New York. And uh, while I'm telemarketing, I meet a guy and um, Maurice owned a house in Boston that he bought for a dollar because it was a destroyed house that he had to rebuild. So I was looking for something like that in Manhattan. And I met a guy that said, I think I found something like that. So we went up to uh, 138th Street. There was this building and we the rent was like $250 because it was a destroyed building. There was 42 units. There was only 16 units that were habitable. They said, we'll give you a unit for 250 bucks if you come in and, and fix it up. So, so that got me to Manhattan. And I still own that because eventually we fixed it up. We got into a city program. For $250? For two, well, yes. For 250 So the rent was $250. And eventually I bought the place for $250. That place is currently worth about $600,000. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, you know, like I said, I still own it. And so my my base of operations for 22 years was out of that apartment on uh, 138th Street. Wow. And, yeah. And then Manhattan became, you know, my launching pad. Well, before I, I moved there, there was there were two other spots. One was at 160th Street and one was 135th Street and 7th Avenue. But then once I found that spot, that was the real spot. And how I got to those other places was my friend um, at the telemarketing place. I, you know, I never looked for an apartment in my life. It was always my mom or my my buddy that found a place for me. Uh, uh, and it's it's really that's one of the quirky uh, parts of my story is that without those people, I don't know, I might have been homeless. <laughs> and, and and so now we're going to fast forward. So now you're a big star in, in London. While while you're living in New York City, as a tele yeah. work as a telemarketer, like what what's the next step after that? So, from eighty one to eighty three, you know, I'm on this hustle grind, this hustle grind, this hustle grind, and uh, at the same time, I got these records out on Greyhound and Reach Out International, and Virgin calls, and Virgin's interested, and so eighty three is when I ink with Virgin. So in order for me to sign with Virgin, they actually flew me over. They picked me up in a white Rolls Royce. Remember I told you that I had uh, watched Isaac Hayes when I was a kid? Yeah, yeah. Isaac Hayes split America and went to Europe to avoid taxes. The first person that opened the door when I went to the Prince Charles party was Isaac Hayes. I mean, that was like amazing to me. My life, I, I could have I just died right there and I would have been happy. Um, wow. So, so now I realize I'm a big star in Europe and I'm, you know, I got to do my first tour. My first tour was successful. I come home, I spend my money, I got to telemarket again because, you know, a black tour lasts for like three months, four months, a white tour lasts for 18 months. So three months is not going to get you a lot of money. So I come, I telemarket again, then I go do my second tour. Um, you know, I blow up and getting bigger. My third album comes out. I'm competing with Boy George, who's on my label. I'm competing with uh, Phil Collins' Face View 
face value album that's on my label. Uh, I'm doing 50,000 units. Freaking Boy George is doing 800,000 units and 1.5 million units and stuff. I'm like, this is kind of scary. I'm not selling a lot of records. And hip-hop is starting to pound funk. Like, literally, hip-hop is punching funk around like it was just a little a little kid. <laughs> and the the record labels are looking at the 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 economic viability of a hip hop duo or trio versus an an R&B or a funk group by 1985 walk this way comes out and walk this way is a merger of rock and hip hop and Aerosmith and Run DMC it proves that the novelty art form hip hop is now a viable and probably much more viable for record companies than funk or hip-hop. In 1985, every funk artist, Parliament, Bootsy, Brass Construction, Cool and Gang, everybody loses their deal. You can probably look this up between 1985. The last funk record, the last funk album is Word Up. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. By Cameo. And it was 1986. That was it. Done deal. Nobody else is putting any more funk out on a major label. Everything for black music is going to be hip hop moving forward. And the next round of hip hop was Public Enemy in 1987 on the East Coast and NWA on the West Coast. And then the West Coast took it over from there. And you had artists like Ice-T, so forth and so on. So meanwhile, I'm kind of stunned. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm on a, a, a British label. They didn't have an American branch yet. I got some minor distribution of a single on Atlantic Records. I said, the handwriting is on the wall. I'm not going to be able to stand on a stage in front of 30,000 people much longer. Um, I got to figure this out. So I'm sitting and thinking, sitting and thinking at one of my telemarketing jobs after one of my tours, and I'm flipping through the Village Voice, and I see a guy sitting behind a console. And I'm flipping, I'm flipping, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, what was that? A guy sitting behind a console. Oh, it's a program where you can study audio engineering. Now, that was interesting to me because... I met Nile Rogers on one of my tours because he was producing Duran Duran and I was a support act for Duran Duran. So I called Nile up when I came back home. It's really funny because we're honoring Nile this, this uh, year at Berkeley uh, with an honorary doctorate. But I called Nile up and I called Nile at like 8 p.m. Nile answers the phone. He comes, he comes to the phone. I call Nile up at, you know, like 10 a.m. Nile comes to the phone. I call Nile up at 2 a.m. Nile comes to the phone. 
It didn't matter what time of the day or night I called Nile up. He was in the studio. I was like, okay. I'm looking at this little newspaper thing with this guy sitting behind the console. I'm thinking about my friend Nile, who's a record producer who's always in the studio. I'm a record producer, but I'm not always in the studio. How can I get in the studio all the time? When I saw that article, I said, oh, there's two people that are in the studio all the time. Every time Nile is in there as a producer, there's an engineer in there also. And this program teaches you how to become an engineer. That's very interesting. So I started to pursue that program. Come to find out, you could get financial aid if you were a high school graduate, but not a college graduate. I was like begging and pleading with these people, please let me in. So the financial aid person was an African-American female. She had just been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. So one of the last things she did before she left the planet was to help Prince Charles get financial aid to become one of the students in that program. Wow. It, it, it's also crazy too that you called career advice to your friend. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> Niles Roger. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so I studied that program uh, while I was in the program. I was interning at one of the local studios that I had produced that. When I graduated from the program, I dropped the name Prince Charles and was just Charles Alexander um, and became a, an assistant engineer in a studio that had a Neve console and an SSL console. Those are the two uh, dominant consoles in audio engineering, even to this day. And um, it took about two years of well, it took about six months for me to become, to move up from intern to assistant and about six months from, for me to move from assistant to engineer. You know, I, I was already very clear what, what the gig was. I wanted to ask you from being the, you know, frontal talent to having 30,000 people scream and know your songs and dance and make them move to being all of a sudden behind the scenes. How did you uh, handle that transition? That's a great question. So when I was 23, before I moved to New York, I broke down and cried like a baby because the frustration of not being the size of my brand, not being the size I wanted to be was crushing for me. And I broke down and cried in my girlfriend's arms. And that was the last time I cried until my mom passed uh, 27 years after that. So I made a pact with myself when I was 23 that I was just going to suck, suck it up and do whatever I had to do moving forward in order to make my dreams come to fruition. So when I was 27 years old, well, actually I was 26 years old, um, and uh, we're at 1986 now, um, 80, yeah, we're at 86, I had a catharsis. I was at Madison Square Garden. It was a two-night thing and uh, Duran Duran and I was warming Duran Duran up. So the first night I went on stage and 30,000 people were screaming my name. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. This is awesome. What a, what an elation. The second night, I don't know if you've ever seen like those, the athlete where they'll sit in the, in the locker room before they go on. Yeah. And they don't talk to anybody and they're just kind of in a very, very odd place. Yeah. I found, I found that place. I basically was backstage at Madison Square Garden trying to figure out how to continue in the music industry with an album that wasn't giving me huge success, 
with a genre that was beating my genre up. Um, and I was basically projecting 20 years into the future, 30 years into the future, thinking of myself standing on stage in spandex and how pathetic that would look. Uh, mm. Mm. So I doubled down and, and committed to, to this program. And that's what led to me having the conversation with the financial aid person. And basically that night in, in Madison Square Garden is the night that uh, if there were any tears to be shed, those tears would have been shed that night. But I had already made that pact with myself that I would not shed tears. So what happened was a stoic resoluteness to move forward to a new part of my career. And that career was going to be the studio rat, the person that would, would make other people's dreams come true by turning knobs and pushing buttons. And what would you say was your first you know, introduction or, or big break you know, as an engineer in, in this new role? So as an assistant engineer in the studio that I was in called Sound Ideas on 46th Street, uh, the SSO was upstairs, the Neve was downstairs. And I got booked to do a tour. I went over to France and toured with a big artist. I was like one of the musicians in this big tour. And while I was on that tour, I was like, you know, if I keep doing this touring thing, I'm not going to be able to become the studio rat that I want to become. So that was the last tour. And I made a pact with myself that I wasn't going to go out anymore. I came back and I lost my position. I was in, I was in position to become the next, you know, um, assistant engineer on the best gigs. So I lost my position to another guy named Paul Logos. So when I came back, Paul was working with a black producer that had like a million dollars worth of gear. His name was Paul Lawrence, and Paul Lawrence worked with Hush Productions, and they were doing Melba Moore and Freddie Jackson. I was livid that I had lost my position to Paul, to Paul Logos, and I was like freaking out because I'm downstairs doing salsa music and rock and roll music on the Neve, and Paul's upstairs on the SSL doing like, you know, Hush Productions, Freddie Jackson and Melba Moore and uh, Ray Goodman and Brown and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm in the wrong place. I'm supposed to be upstairs. Well, you know... I relaxed, I calmed down, and I just, just put my nose to the grindstone. Two two months in, Paul was like, you know, I had enough of this uh, R&B stuff. I want to go do some rock and roll. So Paul begged off of that gig and said, please put Charles on it. Next thing I know, I'm in the room with Paul Lawrence, and Paul Lawrence used to be Kashif's partner. So I'm in there, and I'm the assistant engineer. His engineer was Ron Banks. And after a couple of months, Ron was having some issues with what he was being paid. And he was like, you know, I want to get paid more money. So Paul calls me up and said, do you want to engineer the sessions? And the session was for Freddie Jackson. I'm like, well, sure. But I didn't want to, like, you know, poop all over Ron. So I called Ron up and I said, is it cool? Ron said, yeah, yeah, it's cool. I was like, I don't believe you, man. Is it cool? Do you really want me to, to be going in there? Because I'm going to take your gig. Because you know I'm going to bring fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Ron said it was cool. And I'm like, all right. So... I start working and then I'm doing Ron, uh, Ron, Paul Lawrence. And, and I basically took the gig from, uh, from Ron Banks and we're doing Sarah Dash and we're interviewing people like, uh, uh, um, uh, Janet Jackson and Paul actually turned Janet Jackson down, which I think was a, a silly move. Uh, and we're doing Ray Goodman and Brown and all those types of acts. And then Paul gets a call from Kashif, his former partner saying, I, would like to have an engineer that can work with Mike in my home facility. Now I'm working with Paul as an engineer on a salary that's about $200 a week. And it's being supplemented with 
work from Paul, it's like, you know, $35 an hour and maybe I'm working 10, maybe I'm, so maybe I'm supplementing my 200 bucks with another 350 or $700, but it's, it's, it's not consistent. So Kashif said, I'll pay you $800 a week. Man, I thought I was rich. <laughs> I was like, $800 a week? Oh, hell yeah. So after some, you know, deliberation, I agreed to become Kashif's engineer. Now, this is tricky stuff because I got pulled out of the studio. I no longer had a cushion. Even a $200 a week cushion was now gone. I get pulled out. I work on Kashif's acts. And, he, you know, he was doing all kind of hot people. And then I work on his album. His album was called Personality, I believe. So Kashif wanted to work in California and he wanted to work in Bermuda. So I'm kind of balling right now. But I'm making $800. And then Kashif went to um, L.A., and my eight hundred dollars, I'm looking at. Well, how many hours did I work this week? I worked a hundred dollars, a hundred hours that week, and I'm like a hundred hours into eight hundred dollars is eight dollars an hour. I was like, damn you, Kashif. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's you know, but but Kashif has a big name, and it's kind of helping me to to have a little shine. I'm organizing his projects, color coding his projects. We didn't have Excel spreadsheets, but I was doing the equivalent of Excel spreadsheets, making sure that the the master reels and the the, the worker reels and all those things were organized. And then and then Kashif puts personality out. Personality goes stone cold; it doesn't sell any units. And Kashif just goes boom; he's cold overnight. So he couldn't afford me anymore. So boom, here I am. I'm now what's called a freelance audio engineer. Basically, you're an audio engineer that doesn't have any work. So I come back to some of the studios in New York and I'm like, you know, what do you need? I'll be an assistant. I'll be an engineer, whatever you need. And I'm floating around in a room kind of doing a one-off mix of somebody. And this this young guy walks by the room and he hears all this bottom that I have coming out of NS10s. NS10s are like near-field monitors. They're, they're like a medium size, but they have a, you know, not really a big bottomy sound. And I'm getting this huge bottom out of the NS10 speakers. And this kid comes into the room and says, wow, you're getting an incredible sound out of there. Who are you? And I tell him I'm Prince Charles and I've been around and I've worked with Kashif and Hush Productions. He says, well, my name's Chad Elliott. They call me Dr. Seuss. And I actually work with a group called Jodeci. Maybe they'd be interested in, uh, in hearing your song. I said, sure, please pass my name around. Fine. Well, one thing leads to another. And a guy that wanted to manage me, um, I think his name was David Miles. I said, no, I don't want to manage you. I don't want to manage you because I almost killed Tony Rose back in the day. <laughs> and I was like, you don't you don't want to manage me. But David kept trying to pursue me, pursue me, pursue me. And then one day David calls me up and says, hey, guess what I'm doing? He said, I'm the production coordinator for Uptown Records. I was like, oh, production coordinators, aren't they the ones that book studios and hire engineers? He said, yes. I said, so I know you wanted to manage me. I'm still kind of, you know, maybe I'll consider it if you get me some work. He said, done deal. So he starts making phone calls. Don't you know the first group I worked with was Jodeci? I walk in a the room, there's Dr. Seuss and, and uh, uh, Devante Swing. And two weeks after I walked into that room, David Miles left the music industry. So remember I told you that story about the, the, the woman that helped me get into Center for Media Arts? David Miles' story is similar in that, boom, he gets me in the door and now he's gone. Wow. So here I am. And are, are you also familiar with Jodeci at this time? Oh, yeah. Jodeci had uh, So You Having My Baby, and it means so much to me. They oh, that, wow. That, that, and so I'm like, oh, I'm in heaven. 
plus I had been trying to get to Uptown because Hush Productions was crashing and burning. And then all kind of silliness was going on. Melba was suing her husband. And the money over at Hush was really screwed up. And I had to come in and yell and scream and, and threaten to kill somebody one time in order to get paid. And I was like, I got to find somewhere else to work. Where's the black people at? Oh, the black people over at Uptown? I want to work there. But nobody knew me and I couldn't get in. So David calling me, that was a really important phone call. And then here I am. I'm in the room with Joe to see Casey, Devante, uh, Jojo, and Dalvin. And we make the Diary of a Mad Band album together. I'm playing saxophone and flute on a couple of compositions. I mix the entire record. Cry For You came out and was, did really well. Um, oh, you, you recorded Cry For You? I recorded Cry. I recorded everything on that album. came out was hugely successful and so now i'm kind of like it's starting to happen i did some heavy d work heavy d went gold um dive a mad band goes platinum something's getting ready to happen things are going on and then a friend of mine who's an engineer named jimmy douglas he came and he said i want some work too i was like jimmy i can't do nothing for you jimmy said all right i'm gonna leave i'm gonna go out to rochester if anybody needs an engineer a good engineer i'm in rochester Jimmy Douglas did Slide by Slave when he was 18 years old. He was the engineer for the song Slide by the group Slave. Do some research on that song. Incredible stuff. Blew my mind. I was probably 14 when I heard that. So Jimmy was like an older mentor to me, but he was having some tough times. And I tell you that part of the story because there's a little bit of a wrinkle there, and it's an important wrinkle. Um... Jodeci wanted to do the album after Diary of a Mad Band, which became like the show, the after party, whatever that thing is. So they went, so they were asking me, we want to record somewhere else other than New York because the groupies are just descending upon us in New York like crazy and we want to go somewhere else. I said, my friend is in Rochester. Why don't you go out there? Jodeci goes to Rochester. In their camp, their junior producer went and one of their uh, junior uh, acts went with them. A couple of the junior acts. One of the junior acts was a group called um, Sister, S-Y-S-T-A. In the group, Sister was a lady named Missy Misdemeanor Elliott. One of the junior producers was a guy named Tim Mosley, who would later become Timbaland. Stop. One, one of the other guys in the group was a guy named Elgin, who would later become known as Genuine. All of them were in Rochester with Jimmy Douglas, and I... This is one of those real, like, like I, I've been everywhere stories. I was the one that set that up. I put that in motion by sending them to Jimmy. And then Sylvia Roan gets wind of Tim and uh, Missy's efforts. And then she hooks Tim and Missy up with Aaliyah. And then that's the rest of that history. And then Tim pulled Jimmy Douglas with him for the next 10 years. So here I am in New York. I send them out there. And Jodeci's A&R guy. This little 19, 20-year-old wunderkind named Sean Puffy Combs approaches me and says, I need an engineer because I got like 10 acts going on. 
He said, you down? I'm like, I'm down. Mm-hmm. Then that basically was the entry. This is 1990, 1991. He gets an infusion of money from Clive Davis in 1992. I'm one of the engineers that's right there in Ground Zero. Me and Tony Maserati. Eventually, Paul Logos would come in. Um, oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on some of the other names. But then even later on, Michael Patterson would come in. Um, but basically, I'm there with Ground Zero with Bad Boy. I was there with Craig Mack, with Notorious B.I.G., Mary J. Blige, uh, Faith Evans, 112, The Locks, G-Dep, Black Rob, uh, Mark Curry, the entire roster. So, uh, total, the entire roster for the next 10 years. I always ask this question. Um, do people kind of recognize um, when things that are special are happening in the moment? At this time, in like 1990, 91, when you're teaming up with Puff for the first time, um, are you feeling an energy of this is going to be something that's going to be groundbreaking? Um, yes. I had, so I had been around Paul. Paul had a million dollars worth of gear. But Puffy took his $6 million investment from Clive Davis and opened up a studio and opened up offices. And if that wasn't enough, he put out Flavor in Your Ear by Craig Mack and Flavor in Your Ear was the equivalent of like Happy by Pharrell in terms of how it was being played across the summer. It, it destroyed the summer. Flavor in Your Ear was ridiculous. And see, I'm, I'm a black man as an engineer. Most of my counterparts were white. So they didn't necessarily go home and hear the music in their neighborhood. I was going home and hearing everything that I was doing on the radio and, and at the parties, and I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> I'm involved with the hottest black thing in America. This is, I'm, I'm living it. But Puffy, being Puffy, could never share the shine creatively, artistically, technologically, spiritually. It's, a, it's, just, it's just not his thing. It's about him. So there are ways that I felt I could have been showcased to the world uh, through Puffy's organization, but it never happened. So there came a point many years in, six, seven, eight years in, where, uh, and a lot of people have this conversation with Puffy, like, Puffy, you're not doing anything for me. Like, what's up with that? And what Puffy told me when I had that conversation with him was, it's not my responsibility to do for you. You need to take my star, my star power and do what you can do for yourself. He didn't have to say that to me twice. I was like, good. I'm good with that. Got it. Because I want to I want to touch on, uh, you know, working with with Notorious B.I.G. with Biggie. Is there, is there a story behind that particular session? Um. One more chance, not really. That was a pretty pedestrian. You come in, I record you, you go home. Not Nothing really amazing happened there. There are some more stories about the song Suicidal Thoughts and the intro to uh, Ready to Die. If you know the intro to Ready to Die, the, the father on there is screaming his head off. God damn, I smacked the judge. You know, that guy right there? Yeah. But, well, we were recording a... Um, a young lady and a guy that were doing the conversation between the mother and the father. And the first guy was kind of lackluster. 
And then there was another guy, you know, these people hanging around the studio. Puffy wanted to, to, to sound like uh, Big's mom and dad. Another guy went in and he was kind of like, eh, it's OK, maybe it can work, maybe it can't work. And then he comes out. And then there's another like, this guy that went in. He said, let me try it. Excuse me. And these are not even producers. These are just guys who happened to be around Puffy that day. I don't know. It might have even been bodyguards or something. So one of them goes in and he tries it. And I'm sitting there like twiddling my thumbs because, you know, I've, I've been on stage. I'm an artist. I, I've, I've made albums where I did all kind of vocal stuff and, and I've acted on stage and things like that. So I'm twiddling my thumbs going, yo, this is some weak ass black rage. And so I turned around to Puffy and said, yo, Puff, let me go in there and show you what Black Raid sounds like. So Puff was laughing. He's like, all right, we done already tried three people. So he said, go in. So I went in. We rolled the tape. I said, Puff, you hit the play button and you hit the record button. I went in. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm God damn it, Fulano, what the fuck are you doing? You can't control that goddamn boy. What? I just saw Mr. Johnson. He told me he caught the motherfucking boy and shot the What the fuck are you doing? You can't control that guy. I don't know what the fuck to do with that boy. What the fuck do you want me to do? If you can't fucking control that boy, I'm going to send him. laughing he said that's it that's it that's it he had me do the the voice of the uh the guard that that tells biggie yeah sure you'll be back you niggas always are i did that voice also and that's my my voice embedded forever and ever in a classic is on that intro wow that is amazing that now, is amazing uh, the other story is on suicidal thoughts we we looked into our library of sound effects to get a, the, a, a body thud that would like land on the ground. And we're looking and we're looking and nothing really sounded authentic. So, so I forget who had the brilliant idea. It might've been Big, it was either Big or Puff. Said, why don't we just have Big fall and we record that. And I'm like, well, that might not even really sound all that hip. It might just sound like, Boof. you know, it might not sound like a body thud. But he said, let's try it, let's try it, let's try it. So we turned the lights out because Big didn't want to look like a, a total stupid fool. We, we turned the lights out and, you know, suicidal thoughts is winding down and you get to the last words and then you hit a gunshot and then Big fell on the floor and man... Perfect. It sounded just like a body hitting the floor. We all like busted out, cracked up laughing. Um, Big came out. He listened to it. We checked it out with a man. I never thought you were going to be able to do that because it wasn't really even a big place. I don't know how he felt because, like I said, the lights were out. So that was that was one of those other stories that was really interesting to me of of what an artist because Big was an artist. They, people think of him as a gangster and a crack seller and all this kind of stuff. But really big, the big that I knew was a recording artist that was in the studio trying to create narratives that people would be entertained by. And for me, that was one of those things that he went 
he, he kind of went for it to, to give us what they call in the audio world a Foley moment. Foley is where you record an audio effect that we didn't have. And he gave us that Foley mo- moment so that we could put it into the, uh, into suicidal thoughts. Uh, also, too, this this time period that we're talking about, you were with Bad Boy during the whole East Coast, West Coast, you know, kind of dynamic. What was it like being kind of in that atmosphere at that time? It was really weird and freaky because... From my point of view, there was nobody at Bad Boy that was a thug or a gangster. Uh, we were surrounded by ex-convicts. Like Puffy's um, Puffy security force had a lot of guys that had just come out the joint that can't get a job. And, you know, he hires them a couple of hundred dollars a week and he's got a security force. And he also used the Food of Islam. But, you know, he, when the Food of Islam couldn't be there, the, he had a couple of guys he could call on who literally couldn't get any other jobs and they, he would hire them. So we had, we had a, we had an element around us. I didn't think that Puffy was a gangster. Um, like notorious B.I.G. was maybe, a, maybe he sold drugs in his life, but I mean, who didn't sell drugs in the seventies and, and I guess in their generation in the eighties and, and the nineties. So for me as a black man, I'm just seeing black survival. I'm not seeing thug right mm. the west coast i don't know if i can say the same thing suge is pretty hardcore and all of a sudden i i hear snoop saying thing and then suge gets on stage and says you know if you want to be at a label where the guy's not dancing all up in your videos come over here and it was like a there was an implied threat and then tupac drops the you know i screwed your wife um, freestyle talking about Faith Evans, and everybody's looking at Big like, "Yo, man, you gotta, you gotta respond to this. You gotta react." Honestly, Big was like, "I ain't reacting to that stupid stuff. Why do? Why, why are you trying to drag me into this?" And then eventually, I think he did respond. But, but basically, the East Coast was on some energy. Like, I don't know where these brothers are coming from. Maybe if we just ignore them, they'll go away because we'll be trying to make money and they're trying to make this like a turf war. And it just didn't stop. It will, it kept going. And then Tupac gets shot outside a quad and then Tupac gets murdered and everybody blames Big and Puff. And this thing is just spiraling out of control. And then Big gets murdered. And then when Big got murdered, Puff disappeared for a couple of weeks. And when he came back, he kind of looked like he had been through some stuff. Um, because like, what, what were there were there conversations, um, that were happening in the studio about the environment that was going on in hip hop at the time? I'm telling you, the conversations I was hearing on the East Coast were like, "What the hell is going on? These wow. brothers on the West Coast are bugging. Like, what is this even all about?" Those are the conversations I was hearing. Was was there was there a change in like, how did the landscape change at Bad Boy after uh, Big passed away? Oh, yeah. I was thinking, you know, I was thinking, like, I'm a sitting duck. I don't know why I'm sitting in this studio and I'm not strapped. I don't know why there's not a, a, a you know, a, a shotgun underneath the console. I'm trying to figure out ways to actually, like, mount a shotgun underneath the console. Uh, Devante and them, I mean, from Devante all the way through Puff, everybody was carrying guns. Everybody had, like, a you know, a 9 millimeter or something like that on them. But more and more, it was like, we got to we, we gotta be strapped, packing something. 
I mean, I was seeing gun expos and stuff in the studio. People coming there, everybody laid a gun down and comparing their guns and shit like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> like, what? Like, wait, wait, how did you? How did you exit? Um, make that exit out of Bad Boy and, and move on from from that experience. So after after the death of Notorious B.I.G. Southern hip hop starts to get much more popular and much more dominant. And actually, after Puffy's success with um, I'll Be Missing You. And uh, even though the South is getting dominant, Puffy is, a, a, is an acknowledged genius and one of the biggest things in the industry. So he was able to continue for many, many, many more years. And I was never signed to Bad Boy. I literally was a freelancer who got a call every Monday and said, this is what's happening this week for 10 years. And somewhere around uh, 2001, 2002, um, I think Puffy had been acquitted from the charges. Oh, the, the, the shine trial. The, the no, Well, yeah, the shine thing, J-Lo and all that kind of stuff. And Puffy was acquitted. And we were in... Miami working and uh, I saw Puffy he had he had changed from the, the kid that I knew in 1990-1991-1992-1990-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1991-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1992-1
while I'm doing all that, I had my own facility. I had my own studio, too. It was a smaller version of uh, Daddy's House. And I had been producing. I had been producing international acts. I was actually a very successful producer in, in France. I was a successful producer in Japan. I was a successful producer um, for, for um, artists like Angie Stone and Faith Evans. So it wasn't just Puffy's work, but Puffy's work was half of my income. And my work was the other half of my income. So I decided to, to really pour all of my energy into my studio and my songwriting and the writers that I had, so forth and so on. So I started to pull back and get less and less work with Bad Boy. Um, this is the era where analog tape is moving to DAT tape, which is moving to ADAT tape, which is moving to DA88s and DA78s and all these modular rigs where you push, put a cassette tape in and you record and the home studio revolution is happening. Home studio meaning you don't really need a studio in Manhattan. So from 2001 to 2004, while I'm putting more emphasis on my studio, the home studio revolution is basically like, hey, you need all that stuff at home. You really don't need it in a studio. Mm, okay. So by, so by 2004, I basically said, okay, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over and expect a different result. What am I doing over and over? I'm working with Puff. What am I doing over and over? I'm working in my studio on these international productions. Am I getting the result that I want? No. So what's the way to, to change this? Stop doing it and do something different. So I just, Puffy called me up in 2004. I was like, I'm doing something. Uh, I'm busy. I can't come in. Um, I wasn't doing anything. I was actually, I started shooting pool and I shot pool for the next two years. But that's another story. <laughs> and what I did was I took all my gear. I had about a quarter of a million dollars worth of gear. And I went to the local store that buys gear and I sold everything, shut my operation down. And I went and shot pool for two years. While I was shooting pool, though, I'm not totally stupid. I sent out my, uh, my curriculum vitae to NYU, Fordham University, City College, anywhere that had any inkling or smattering of an audio program. Because I was like, you know what? I think the audio engineering thing is going to kind of be played too. If this home studio revolution keeps going, the audio engineer is going to be in danger eventually. So let me figure out another way to use 30 years of, of uh, mus musicality and see what I can do. Eventually, after about 18 months, I'm sitting there shooting pool, shooting pool, shooting pool, shooting pool. My money's running out. And I'm like, uh oh, am I going to have to start telemarketing again? <laughs> and then uh, I got a call from NYU when I started teaching at NYU. And then six months after that, I got a call from Berkeley. And Berkeley said, we have a full-time position for you if you're interested. I came, I auditioned for it, uh, interviewed for it. I blew them away because I knew the SSL backwards and forwards. Um, I understood technology. I knew MIDI. I knew synthesis. I knew sequencers. I knew vocal technologies. I mean, I'm like a quadruple, quintuple, sextuple threat. And Berkeley was like, hey, come on in. And that's been the third chapter of my life. The first chapter was being an artist. The second chapter was being a producer engineer. And now I'm in the third chapter where I'm a professor at one of the leading institutions of contemporary music in the world. And, and how, how has this new role uh, changed your life? Like, where are you at now? Talk to me. Steady income is better than income that comes around every six months. You know, you can, you can get a check for like, you know, 120 grand. 
and then you might not get another check for the next six more months. So 120 grand is a lot of money until you got to stretch it. Because when you got 120 grand in your, in your hand, you're like, I got 120 grand. Meanwhile, you really be, need to be looking at it like I got 20 grand a month for six months or 10 grand a month for 12 months. But nobody looks at it like that. So being a professor at Berkeley and getting that check consistently every two weeks has helped me to uh, firm up my credit, firm up my um, insurances, my home insurance, my health insurance. I own homes. I own cars. It's like, you know, while I was trying to be a star on the level of Prince and Michael Jackson and blow up and make lots and lots and lots and multi-millions of dollars, there's a lot that you can do if you have a great plan and a consistent revenue stream. And so that consistent revenue stream is now my fundamental bed. And I augment that by mixing and producing projects all over the world. I've been to uh, South Africa. I've been to Japan. I've been to Malaysia. I've been back to France many times. We just celebrated the 20th anniversary of an iconic album that I did in France called L'Ecole du Micro d'Argent, the School of the Silver Microphone. Um, and I'm going to Kenya this year. I'm, I'm married for a second time. I've got young children. I've got old children. I've got grandchildren. I'm so blessed. And my, my, um, my peers, Rick James is no longer with us. Prince is no longer with us. Michael Jackson is no longer with us. Um, the Lord above throws at us what we can tolerate. And all I can say is, hang in there, everybody that has a dream. It might not look the way you want it to look when you arrive. But if you if you get a great plan, you stick to the plan, and you move forward through that plan, the Lord above does provide. Wow. Look, Prince Charles, I, I just can't say thank you enough for being on the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your story. You are absolutely amazing. Next time I'm in Boston, I'm going to come give you a holler. All right? Yeah, definitely, Corey. I appreciate it. And, and thanks for giving me a holler. And we'll, we'll definitely talk soon. I appreciate you. All right. Appreciate you. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens. NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.